Reading from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 14. And when it was evening, he came with the twelve. And as they were reclining at table and eating, Jesus said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They began to be sorrowful and to say to him, one after another, Is it I? He said to them, It is one of the twelve, one who is dipping bread into the dish with me. For the Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. And as they were eating, he took bread, and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to them and said, Take, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it. And he said to them, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. And Jesus said to them, you will all fall away, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter said to him, even though they all fall away, I will not. And Jesus said to him, truly I tell you this very night, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But he said emphatically, if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said the same. And they went to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a little farther, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. And he came and found them sleeping, and he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again he went away and prayed, saying the same words, and again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. And he came the third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough, the hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. The word of the Lord. There is a joy that comes from being together with people that you care about, that you're close to, with family and friends. 
We see this especially at holidays, like Thanksgiving or Christmas, or vacations, and especially if it's the sort of vacation you always do. We always go to this beach with our cousins. We always go to the mountains with our extended family friends. It's also seen in those times of celebrating where you celebrate and rejoice together. Last weekend, I had the chance to celebrate together with some of my closest friends and family. It was uh, a special event in my life um, and in the life of many of my friends as we celebrated UVA winning the national championship. Um, And believe me, it was really exciting. And in fact, it really tense and really exciting. But it was all the more so because I was doing so with so many of my friends, both the final four game and the finals game. I got to be with extended friends and all their kids and my you know, family. And it was so much emotional exhaustion. Both games involved a lot of people near, nearly in tears, people that were so tense they had to pace back and forth. One guy even stood outside watching because he was too nervous to watch. And when they finally won, Both games involved incredible celebration. Grown men, grown men marching around singing songs. People being carried on shoulders. Men carrying other men on their shoulders. Children, women, laughing, screaming. The absolute elation of celebrating together something like that is so much fun. I could have done it by myself. I would have enjoyed my team winning. But the experience of doing it with others Walking through that together enhances the joy. It was a moment like this. It was actually a season like this, a couple of days like this, that the disciples were experiencing as they entered Jerusalem that Passover week. You have to remember, first of all, that the disciples were besties. They were super close friends with each other and with Jesus. So for like three years, they had spent all their time together doing such amazing things. So like any of you who have really good, long friendships, they had the closest of good, long friendships. They had known each other and known each other intimately so that it was like like your close family, this group of disciples. So there they were with their best friends. And in in the course of life, they were winning at this time. So they, they had that celebratory joy as they rode into Jerusalem with Jesus, with everybody celebrating. There was akin to the pictures and videos that maybe some of you saw of celebrations after UVA won on the corner near, near UVA where the students poured out of houses, screaming, filling up the streets. People were climbing on light poles, which I don't know why you would climb on a light pole, but they were doing it out of sheer elation and joy with each other, all screaming and yelling. We saw this last year when the Capitals won the Stanley Cup. The the Capitals won the Stanley Cup in an away game in Las Vegas. Capitals fans here in D.C. didn't know what to do because they weren't at the arena, so they went to the arena, which was closed, essentially. Like they, They came out of the arena. People were piled up all over the streets near Capital One Arena as if the Caps had just played there, cheering and celebrating. I even had two friends who live here in Vienna who got in contact with each other, jumped in the same car, threw a kid in, or two kids, and drove down celebrating at midnight because they wanted to be with others celebrating. That sheer joy and celebration with your close friends of winning was what was happening as the disciples are with Jesus riding into Jerusalem. Days earlier, Lazarus, also one of their close friends, had died. And then Jesus raised him to life. That was as big of a win as you could possibly get. 
Your, one of your closest friends dies, Jesus comes along, raises him to life, and the celebration in that community, Mary, Martha, Lazarus, he's alive. They were winning in the game of life. And then they ride into Jerusalem, and everyone is shouting and cheering, Hosanna, this is the king. This is, this is the triumphant victory parade and while the disciples aren't like starters on the team, they're on the team. They get a trophy. They're part of the winning team. They're with Jesus, kind of like right up alongside of him as everyone's cheering and shouting them and, and Jesus, of course. They are enjoying this moment, this moment of celebration and winning with their best friends. And on top of that, it was Passover week. The closest thing we have to Passover is Christmas where there's all that religious and family and, and essentially national holiday tied to it. Passover was just such a holiday. It was the highest feast really in that day and age because of the way that the whole culture celebrated around it. You couldn't often go to Jerusalem if you lived far away, but if you could go to Jerusalem, it also enhanced the celebration and the joy. This religious festival where, I mean, you think about Christmas, right? You, many of you have very fond memories of Christmas. It is your faith, it is also the music and your family and the food and the traditions, these things that you do every year that you remember. That's what Passover was for that first century Jewish culture. So there they are celebrating the equivalent of Christmas, Passover. And on top of it, it's Passover where their team has just won the Stanley Cup and national championship in the same time. Everything is coming together. They are winning. The disciples have lots of good feels in their heart. It's warmth and joy and hope and love and just awesomeness. And then they get to the Passover meal, which is one of the high points of the week. They're celebrating in that upper room, all the family gathered, the friends, that is, but like family, celebrating the meal that they knew by heart, enjoying the wine and the lamb, except there isn't mention of a lamb, and they're enjoying the food. And then Jesus breaks in. He takes the bread that they'd been passing, he takes the bread and breaks it and says, this is my body. In another passage, it says, another version, broken for you. And then he takes a cup, the cup that was part of the tradition that had certain words that went with it in that meal except he changes the words. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. The disciples are feeling all warm and fuzzy, and then something happens. Jesus does and says something. And they follow along, but they know these aren't the words. This isn't the way the story is supposed to go. The story of Passover was absolutely critical to the first century Jewish mindset as it was for hundreds of years before that because it was the birthing of the nation. And it was the birthing of the nation out of slavery. There they were languishing in slavery in Egypt. And God comes through Moses to set the people free, but Pharaoh hardens his heart and will not let the people go. So God brings judgments on Egypt in the form of plagues. Pharaoh will still not let the people go until the final plague comes. And the final plague was that death was going to come on the firstborn son of every household in the land of Egypt. This was a judgment for human sinfulness. Judgment is coming on the land 
for human sinfulness, and every firstborn son will die unless, unless you obey me. You take a lamb and you sacrifice that lamb, and you pour the blood on your door frames, and when the angel of death comes, it will pass over your house because it is covered by the blood of the lamb. The lamb will be sacrificed in place of your son. The Israelites do this, but death falls on the land of Egypt. And Pharaoh finally relents and says, go. And Israel is birthed, it is redeemed, it is set free because they were covered over by the blood of the lamb and the angel of death passed by. So when Jesus says, this is my blood, this is my body, what is he getting at? This joyful celebration for the disciples all of a sudden turns very dark and ominous. And it gets worse because Jesus knows every one of these close friends of him are going to abandon him. He predicts it, he declares it, and then he watches it happen. One of you will betray me. It was Judas, right? But you know, as the disciples are sitting around, none of them knew it was Judas. That indicates Judas was close to Jesus. There wasn't anything where it was like, oh yeah, Jesus is close with these guys, but that Judas guy, it's obviously him. Nobody said it's obviously him, which meant there was an intimacy and relationship that Jesus had with Judas that would have suggested Judas would not be the one to do this. And yet, it is Judas who betrays him so that he is unjustly killed. Then, as he goes out to pray, his closest friends, his other closest friends, Peter, James, and John, who were always with him in hard times, they were always there for him, He had the most intimacy with them by the declarations of the Gospels. And he says, look, I'm going through a really hard time. Can you guys stay with me? And they all fall asleep. Peter, James, and John, hey, this is really hard for me. Can you guys? And they're asleep. He's he's pleading for them to be with him. And they're ignoring his pleas because they have something else on their mind. Peter, you're going to deny me three times. No, I will never do that. To deny three times in the way of writing in that ancient culture was not just to like, I, I you know, stumbled, I was scared, and I said, I don't know Jesus. It's almost like an official declaration. It's like not just saying, I'm going to leave you, it's handing the divorce papers over. The three-time denial of Peter is an absolute official renunciation. It is a disowning and a rejection of Jesus. I officially disown that Jesus guy. I don't know him, I have nothing to do with him, and I never will again. Peter. And in the end, all the disciples flee. You know, when somebody is going through suffering, and maybe you've experienced this, there's a powerful, powerful desire and need to not be alone. There's power in presence. I've had people say, I, I'm, you know, got this friend, I need, I, I need to visit him, but he's, he's sick or he's dying, and I don't know what to say, I don't know what to do. And I try to encourage them, in my experience walking with people in this, you just need to show up. There's an incredible power in human presence. Even though the person can't suffer with you, they can't experience the suffering, their presence helps carry the burden of the suffering. In his hour of greatest need, as he's crying out to the Father in Gethsemane and hears no answer, as he calls to the disciples to stay with him, he is betrayed and abandoned 
by his closest friends, and he is all alone. He is all alone. Loneliness is incredibly powerfully challenging. And we actually live in a culture that is more lonely than has ever been the case. I've mentioned this before, but Dr. Vivek Murthy, who was a former Surgeon General of the United States, has identified loneliness as an epidemic, a psychological and health crisis for the coming age. The increasing rate of feelings of loneliness leading to all of the mental and physical health crises that go with it have been exponentially increasing. Since the 1980s, the rate of self-identifying as lonely has doubled. One in four Americans today feel like they are rarely understood by another human. And almost half of respondents to a, a pretty large survey, almost half said they pretty regularly or constantly feel alone, left out, or isolated. And loneliness, feeling alone, being alone, is powerfully disorienting and actually in some ways ends up dehumanizing us. We see this in the effects of solitary confinement in prisons. Solitary confinement is a brutal practice that has been used for years. It basically, in the American system, means that you are put in an 8 by 10 cell. That's the size of a walk-in closet in many of your houses. An 8 by 10 cell with no windows, just steel or concrete walls, a, a simple bed and toilet, and a light. You have no human contact. 23 hours a day, you're in that cell. You get a little bit of exercise in a large cage for one hour a day. All alone, nothing, no stimulation, no other smells, sights, sounds, no human. You don't even see yourself. Studies have been done on the effects of long-term, sometimes short-term, but long-term uh, solitary confinement, leading prisoners to extreme paranoia and panic attacks, high levels of self-harm, and significantly higher levels of suicide. Many prisoners who spend years, which 25% of prisoners who had been put in solitary confinement in California over the course, course of one study, 25% had been in solitary for a year or more, solid year or more being in solitary confinement. In that stage, you become catatonic, many people do. They lose the ability to interact with humans or to think clearly. Social psychologist Craig Haney, who has been studying this for a number of years, tells the story of one freed prisoner who had spent extensive time in solitary confinement and how his wife called him desperately saying, I don't know what to do, he keeps locking himself in the bathroom. When Dr. Haney went and visited this man, he said, I'm not just locking myself in the bathroom, as soon as I go in there, I go and lie down in the tub because the tub is the closest, coldest metal that I can find. It feels the closest to my solitary cell. The bed and room that I'm supposed to share with my wife feels like an ocean, and I can't, I can't be there. It's too disorienting. He has somebody who loves him, and he can't respond to that love. Brian Stevenson, who wrote the book Just Mercy and started the organization, the Equal Justice Initiative, a number of years back, 
tells the story of Ian Manuel. Ian was a 13-year-old boy who was caught up in a robbery with two older boys. They handed him the gun. He pulled the trigger. A bullet went off and hit the woman, did not kill her, who they robbed. He was guilty and put in prison for life at age 13. But because he was 13 and small, he was coming under the abuse of other prisoners, so they put him in solitary confinement for his own protection. Years and years later, he was still in solitary confinement. Brian Stevenson decided to do a photo shoot of young people who had been in solitary confinement for a year in order to highlight the plight of those in solitary. And the photo shoot involved pictures of Ian. This is Ian some years later when the photo shoot actually happened. After the photo shoot, he wrote a letter to Brian Stevenson. This is what he wrote. Dear Mr. Stevenson, I hope this letter reaches you in good health and everything is going well for you. The focal point of this letter is to thank you for the photo session and obtain information from you how I can obtain a good amount of photos. As you know, I have been in solitary confinement for approximately 14 and a half years. It is like the system has buried me alive and I'm dead to the outside world. These photos mean so much to me right now. All I have is $1.75 in my inmate account right now. If I send you $1 of that, how many photos will that purchase me? I don't know how to make you feel the emotion and importance of these photos, but to be real, I want to show the world I'm alive. I want to look at the photos and feel alive. It would really help with my pain. I felt joyful today during that photo shoot. I wanted it to never end. Please tell me how many photos I can get. I want those photos of myself almost as bad as I want my freedom. Thank you for making a lot of positive occurrences that are happening in my life possible. Please send some photos, okay? From age 13 to his late 20s in solitary. He hadn't seen himself. The photo shoot made him feel alive just to look at the photos of himself. Say, I do exist. Being alone feels like being dead. We are made for relationships. Relationships are essential to enjoyment and human fulfillment. You actually cannot fully enjoy work or school or any team unless you have meaningful relationships. Relationships matter more than success. That's hard, actually, for us to think about. But if you are winning in life, but you're doing so alone, you're losing. Because we were created for relationships and community. The God who created us talks about it in Genesis 1 and 2 when he says it is not good that the man should be alone. And in the image of God, he created them male and female. He created them different, brought together. And they became one flesh relationally. They were naked before each other, physically naked, emotionally naked, spiritually naked, hiding nothing, and they were unashamed. They had such depth of unity and relational connection. That is what we are made for. To be two different people, three different people, five different people brought together in open and trusting relationship. 
We are made for this because we are made in the image of a Trinitarian relational God. Our God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Three persons, one God, in eternal loving union and communion. And we reflect and we image that Trinitarian God. The Bible talks about us having shalom, which means wholeness, flourishing. You cannot have shalom, wholeness, flourishing alone. But the problem is, of course, we don't live in the Garden of Eden. We live east of Eden. We are fallen people, and sin leads to alienation. In Genesis 3, after they eat of the fruit of the tree that they were not supposed to eat, it says that the man and his wife hid themselves from the Lord. And the Lord calls out to the man, where are you? I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid myself. What happened, Adam? The woman that you gave me, she, hiding, blame, shame, these are the things that mark us relationally now. Because we are all sinners, we are alienated from God and alienated from one another, living constantly to hide, filled with shame, blaming and pushing off. We do it with each other because we've already done it with God. And many of you know the depths of that feeling of alienation. You might even be in a church like this, even come regularly and feel alienated from others, to feel alone, feel that extreme loneliness. Many of you hearing what Jesus went through, being betrayed, denied, abandoned, have known that yourself in your life. You've known what it's been to be betrayed, abandoned, hurt by your family or close friends. You've dealt with rumors or backstabbing. You've dealt with the pain of infidelity. You've had people close to you reject you. Talking about this, Pastor Tim Keller said, the impact of rejection in our life depends on the level and closeness of the relationship. Here's how you go on to explain it. If one of you after church comes up to me and says, Johnny, I just want you to know I think you're a horrible person. I never want to see you again. I'm leaving this church, and I, I don't want to have anything to do with you. I would think you're a jerk. <laughs> and then later on, I would think, gosh, I feel kind of terrible about myself. I mean, it would hurt. It stinks when that happens, and it does happen to some extent in a church. It hurts every time somebody sort of rejects you like that. But I'll get over it. But if my wife or my kids come up to me and say, I never want to see you again. I'll be devastated. I won't just get over that. The length and depth of the closeness increases the pain of the rejection. Jesus is being rejected, re rejected and abandoned by his closest friends. Mark 14.50 puts it very clearly and they all left him and fled. The, word th the, the phrase they all is actually one word. It means everyone, everyone. And in the Greek, it actually comes at the end of the sentence, making it emphatic. Basically, it's left him and fled 
everyone. Every one of you. Everyone. He's all alone. Which is why in Gethsemane, he is so torn up. I'm going to read it again, what he says as he goes out to Gethsemane and what is taking place inside of him as Mark records it. Starting in verse 32, and they went to a place called Gethsemane, and Jesus said to his disciples, sit here while I pray, be with me. And he took with him Peter, James, and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little further, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. He's pleading with the disciples to be with him. He does not want to have to go through this alone. And then we have those phrases, he is greatly distressed, troubled, sorrowful to the point of death. He's in absolute shock and terror and horror. He is grief-stricken and anxious. He is completely heartbroken and terrorized. And he calls out, remove this cup from me. He is facing death, Roman crucifixion. He knows everything that's there. And he pleads for this cup to be taken from him. He's dealing with intense horror and despair, pleading for another way. This sequence and the whole story in Gethsemane was actually considered embarrassing to the early and medieval church. They didn't have a category for this type of a savior. They didn't because the ancient and medieval world didn't have a category for this type of a leader facing death. You know, the Greek and Roman world with all of their philosophies like Stoicism had people like Socrates who faced death with cool detachment. What is death? We're only here for a little bit anyhow. He faced death with a cool detachment that said fate comes, we all die, so whatever. The Jewish people, of which Jesus and his disciples were a part, had in their near history the Maccabean martyrs. The Maccabean martyrs died horrific deaths, their bodies being torn apart. And every one of them, according to the Maccabean kind of narrative, declared their praises to Yahweh even as they were being tortured to death. And they clung to a defiance, a defiance that says, I am clinging to Yahweh who will save me and will bring judgment on you who are killing me. Cool detachment, defiance, or even the martyrs of Christianity in the centuries following Jesus. Nearly every one of the martyrs that was recorded faced death with a hopefulness in the resurrection. They are going to be burned alive, crucified themselves, just like Jesus was crucified, fed to lions, and yet they face these horrible, torturous deaths with a hopeful joy, knowing that on the far side of whatever they're facing is eternal joy in the resurrection and presence of God. Why is Jesus so afraid? You would not make this stuff up if you were trying to prove that Jesus was the Messiah, the Christ, or God. You wouldn't come along and say, okay, we need a story that's believable, so let's make him crying for another way, sorrowful and distressed beyond compare when others have died much more bravely, stoically, defiantly, joyfully. Why is Jesus so shaken? 
because he's facing something beyond the whip and the nails. And he gets a hint of that in the garden when he calls out, Abba, Father, and there's silence. On the cross, Jesus cries out that famous phrase, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Sin is not just doing bad things. Sin is living your life apart from God. Sin alienates us, separates us from God. If that's the case, hell is the eternal trajectory of a life that is turned toward anything but God. You want to live apart from me? You may do so forever. In Gethsemane, as he's praying, Jesus is beginning to experience God's wrath. He's getting a taste of hell. He experiences the abandonment and forsakenness of being apart from God forever. He who never sinned became sin for us. He bears our sin in our place. And as a result, the Father turns his face away from the Son. And the extremeness of this is because of the closeness. The Father and the Son had eternal unity, eternal love and communion. A 50-year marriage is great, an eternal one is a little better. If your kids or spouse say, I want nothing to do with you and reject you, it will crush you. The disciples rejecting and abandoning Jesus crushed him. But being forsaken by the Father was infinitely worse. He felt the infinite aloneness of hell in our place. And Jesus, Jesus staggers like taking a heavyweight blow. He calls out, Abba, Father, remove this cup from me and gets silence on the other end. But Jesus does not fall He concludes that prayer with, yet not what I will, but what you will. Thy will be done. Look, no matter what you or I have been through or will go through, Jesus knows your heartbreak, your sorrows, the loneliness and rejection you have felt. He has experienced it too. He also knows your sin, your failure, your rejection of him, and yet he loves you. Give your life to him and you will never be apart from the one that you most need to be with. Look to the cross and don't despair. You will never be forsaken by God because he was already forsaken for you. Let's pray. God, our father, we can call you our father because your son was rejected in our place. As we face this Holy Week, Good Friday at the far end, and then Easter on the even farther end, may we look to that cross and see in that cross all that you have given us, the love and acceptance and forgiveness and mercy that we need so that we can know true and lasting life with you now and forever. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.